But I think if today your executive founding team can't get you those first 20 customers on their own, then they shouldn't be doing it. I think if you as a founder or if your founding team can't get you to that point, you probably shouldn't start to start up with those people in it because I think you're up against a, a very big uphill battle that in the last year and a half, has drastically become harder. People are much more distracted. Companies are much more fragmented. Decision-making is fragmented. Hi there. Welcome to On The Flip Side, a podcast for anyone who wants to live their best sales life. We're going to be talking to buyers, sales managers, SDRs, and A's about things like, what does it take to be a great sales manager? Or how can you go home happy month after month? So let's dive right in. Hi, David. So glad to have you here on the show. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Shruti. How are you? I'm great. Just to kick things off, what was the first thing you ever sold? I think the first thing I ever sold was candied apples. We had this thing at school called, I think it was like a business day. I can't remember exactly how we named it. But basically once a year, we had to open a store of different things. And every year it was like a really fun thing I used to get behind. I used to sell my old toys. But I think the first year that this happened, I must have been in first grade, maybe. I sold candied apples and... I remember that because I dropped them on the ground and they had grass on them and I made a critical business error that I still feel embarrassed about years later. Instead of just brushing off the grass, I thought I'll just wash them. And when I washed the candied <laughs> apples, the candy kind of came off and no one wanted to just buy half candied, half washed apples that had fallen off the ground for me. So it was a tough year of business, my first year of business, but that's the one that I remember the most. I got smarter the next year I sold toys. And then the third year, a friend of mine and I found a playing like a ping, street fighter machine that we could, like people could put in a, one rand because we were in South Africa and you could play. And we just, we printed money. That was like the best business I've ever been in in my life. <laughs> so that's so, how it started. From, from selling uh, things that maybe became accidentally more nutritious to just selling uh, things that were for fun. Sounds like, you know, things that are bad for you, uh, but give you lots of joy. The way to go. Pretty much, yeah. It's, if you look at most successful companies, that's pretty much the model. Interesting. That's that's quite a fun story. And I wonder if your kids have a business day at school and uh, what you would suggest that they sell. Anyways, I was looking at your profile and I was uh, quite intrigued uh, by, you know, the international exposure that you've had. And you just told me that you were actually born in South Africa mm. and you've lived in Sydney and currently you live in Israel and you almost relocated to the US. You know, just would love to hear what those different experiences look like, what what the different cultural contexts look like, or are they more similar than different? And of course, I'm talking to you from a fifth continent out of all of these. So we have pretty good international coverage. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's something that 2020 has done wonders for. Because I think until last year, I think a lot of us weren't as connected by the same experience as we are all now. And I think that there's been a massive internationalization of talent, which is super exciting. Until then, everyone was pretending to be an American company. If you look in Israel, for example, there are a hell of a lot of Delaware-listed US, US companies that... I've never, you know, they have a headquarters, but no one's actually there. And I think now it's not so weird, for lack of a better word, to exist outside of the US. Now, most of the work that I've done in definitely in the startup world has been with US, the US. It's a fantastic country just in general to work with. They're growing, they're accepting of technology, they're very bold. But I think having some sort of international background, growing up in South Africa, moving to Australia, 
now moving to Israel has given me a lot of different perspectives that I think is an, is an advantage. I didn't think about it growing up. It's very hard to constantly move countries. You know, it's not, it's, it's very destabilizing, I think, but I think having that experience is very valuable. And it is something that you can bring into the workforce because you do get, a, I think, a broader sense of the real world, which, you know, business ultimately is about connecting with people. And not everyone is going to be from Manhattan or LA. And do you do you see the the variety of experiences that you've had also translate into, you know, I think we all kind of paint uh, the outside world with a much broader brush strokes, right? So in some sense, it's easy to say that's the US, but even within that, there are so many different cultural content. You know, and so so I guess maybe two questions there, right? One is, you know, has that given you a different appreciation for those things? And two, is that actually possible to take that experience that you've had and kind of leverage that when you're training your teams, all right, who might not have had the same level of exposure, all right? Because they might also be trying to connect with people in a different geography and it's, it's always hard if you've not had that experience. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I think it's dangerous to typecast people and to make statements be in you know, these days, I think you could basically just get a social band and whatever else for, for saying anything out of line. But I think the the important part about being and being to a lot of locations or going to a lot of locations is that you start to realize that by and large, people are pretty much the same. And I don't think people enough people know that. I think if more people understood that on a fundamental level, the world would be a better place. Business is the great equalizer. I think one of the biggest things that always attracts me to business and to selling specifically is that it doesn't matter what religion you are, where you're from, you know, what you did, as long as you love me is the best you boys say, as long as you buy from me. But, you know, it's ultimately about trading value. This is the thing that's interesting, right? It's like, I've got something of value to offer you. It doesn't matter who you are. I've got no bias. And you've got something of value to offer me. And you don't care who I am. You've got no bias, at least we hope. And so we just trade. And that's that's been the number one thing throughout world history that has created peace. And I think that for me, that's probably the most attractive thing about it. And I think that people who lack international exposure don't, you know, are missing out on such an awesome opportunity, both financially and also interpersonally. So, yes, I think it's a massive advantage. And I don't know how much of that I, I necessarily actively kind of you know teach our team i don't necessarily tell them hey guys i've been in sydney this is what everyone's like but i think i i like to hope that the way that we go about thinking about things the way that we go about hiring people choosing clients and then obviously running campaigns you know there is probably that element of understanding that ultimately if you're offering something of value to people and you're being clear and and you know honest about it then it's going to work out and most people are inherently good so it doesn't matter if they look different or speak different or believe different or live in a different place. You know, makes a ton of sense. And I think that was the most surprising uh, thing that I learned uh, about people as well. People actually at a fundamental level are much more similar than different. And you just kind of need to peel uh, the layers uh, a little bit uh, deeper. And, you know, on, on that personal level, I was uh, quite intrigued. You have a family portrait on LinkedIn. That's very unusual. How did that happen? And tell us a little bit more about your family. So it happened because I saw someone talking about it. One of the most successful investors, in, at least in Israel. And I was like, ah, I mean, I know this guy. Be like, I know of him because he's invested in companies that I've worked at. And I looked at his profile. And it was just him hanging in the park with his two kids. And I was like, oh, my God, like, are you kidding me? And then I thought about it and I was like, that's like, that's really bold, you know, because in my LinkedIn profile, like before was me in like a suit, you know, trying to look very sharp. 
And I was, and I thought about it and I was like, wait, why do I, wait a second, hold on a second. Like the reason your profile is like that normally is because you're trying to attract an employer, right? Or you try to represent an employer. I am the employer. Like, and I realized, I was like, wait a second, this guy, what he's saying is not only, we'll talk about the family elements shortly, but what he's saying is like, I'm me. This is who I am. And I don't need to put on any pretenses because I've got the confidence behind me. Like, that I don't have to be a character. I'm just myself. And that's why you buy into me. And when I thought about that, I was like, I have to do this. And number two, I love my family. So if you really want to know who I am, I think that it's it's my family, right? That's a big, big part of it. And I think that I think that one thing that the business world is lacking is humanization. Uh, for me, last year was a massive learning curve and a massive reflection point. I call 2020 the year of perspective. Because you have 2020 perspective. And it made me realize that very few things actually worth worrying about. And they're worth worrying a lot about. And most things are not worth worrying about and are not worth worrying a lot about. And I never want to lose that perspective because we've all seen what's happened in the last year and a half. You know, so many things that we just took for granted and we uprooted. I mean, you and I were just joking that today I can finally go to the gym for the first time in, I think, six months, if not more. And even something little like that, I took completely for granted that I could swim every second day and go lift weights and sit in the sauna. And that was like normal life and, and never mind all the serious stuff. Right. So I think for me, it's part me realizing, you know, which direction I want my life to go. And I found that the more genuine that I've been, the more successful that I've been as well, which maybe you can tie it into also moving across lots of different countries. When you move into a new country, you can be someone completely new it's the it's the coolest part about moving country so many times you can reinvent yourself <laughs> and when i moved to israel i was myself i think i was i had to become a different person moving to australia at 14 you're a teenager you don't have the confidence that australia is a place that really wants you to be australian and when i came here to israel it's such a cultural melting pot and i was older and i was just myself so yeah, that's that to me is my North Star on a personal level. And I think that's why, you know, my LinkedIn profile at least is is that way too. I took the step to see. And by the way, maybe I'll change it one day, guys. So don't hold me to it, you know? <laughs> no, yeah, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think the underlying message is, you know, you are your whole self and you bring your whole self uh, to the workplace and to whatever we do. And yeah, maybe it's it's okay to own it up once in a while, you know, as as long as it doesn't offend people. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think you're right. The pandemic has definitely added to that perspective because we've also just been forced to mash up work and life in yeah. the same space, you know, with kids running around while we are doing video calls and such. So, yeah, I think uh, it's a good realization. And in some ways, I'm glad for uh, the year that it has been. Anyways, you know, moving a little bit more to the business side of things, I know you've done a variety of different things, right? You've managed an SDR team, you worked as an AE, worked as a VP of sales, were a founder on different occasions, and currently are a founder as well, and running, you know, the business that you run today, which itself is quite interesting, and I'd love you to talk about it. So I'm curious, like, you know, out of all of those different perspectives, right, there is a constant conflict between a lot of those, right? There's a conflict between SDRs and AEs at some level, there's a conflict, uh, of course, between you know, the managers and maybe the reps that they manage. And there is definitely a conflict in many situations between the VP of sales and uh, the founders or CEOs that they uh, work with, right? So, you know, having worn both the hat and maybe for today's conversation, let me wear the hat of the CEO and you 
kind of give me your perspective as a VP of sales or ex-VP of sales. Why does that conflict arise, right? And, you know, is there a way around it? So I'm going to talk in the context of tech startup because that's, other than working for the Financial Times, that's the only other time I've had an employer. You know, before that, I was a personal trainer. I ran my own business for six or seven years. And then I, you know, mm-hmm. so, but in startup land, I think there is a, a massive misalignment between the goals of investors, founders, and the actual teams that are behind them, specifically the sales team. If you look at the way compensation, for example, is usually structured, the harder you work and the more successful you are, the less you earn or the same that you earn at some point because the the targets always move. Targets never go down, right? That's the law that everybody knows. And, you're, and if you were ever told, don't worry, we'll readjust it if it's not working, they were lying to you. I think also that every dollar that you earn for a company is worth at least 10 times more to the owners of that business as well because of the valuation that it increases. And a lot of that isn't accounted for. And I think that because this whole thing is premised based on the fact that it's VC funded, which has extremely unrealistic expectations by definition, that everyone is on edge to try and achieve the virtually impossible, right? the virtually impossible growth and exit. And anything other than unicorn valuation is basically seen as like a miss, right? Not even a second place. And so going into those structures, I think there is a lot of conflict. I think there's a lot of dishonesty and I think that there's a lot of mismanagement expectations and what basically happens is the salesperson and VP sales will always look for loopholes to earn as much as they can in the short period that they'll be at that company as possible. And the company will always look to squeeze as many sales out of that person at the lowest rate possible because that is how they're incentivized. And the lower they can reduce the customer acquisition costs relative to growth, you know, the better. So it's a, it's a real problem. And that's why you're seeing, you know, VP sales, 18 months. That's it. Right. Uh, move on generally. AEs, maybe two, three years is like a good tenure. And then they're moving on. It's bizarre. You should be building long term, highly successful salespeople, um, that sit in the company for seven to 10 to 15 years and just build it and take on, you know, varying roles and, and set examples for new, you know, employees. What instead what you're having is these open and shut doors that are constantly just churning in new hire and that one's out. And not the all the knowledge that has been gained is just leaving the door every day in startups. Um I know of one where like I think fifteen people left in the last month. And you know, it's not a gigantic company and, and it's just never mind the pain of replacing them, but the actual cost of the knowledge transfers is insane. So a lot of that conflict has to be managed and it's not very simple to do so. You know, the way you frame that conflict, it seems much more of a systemic issue, right? It's it's literally like if you are a venture funded company, you know, every time you do well, your targets basically increase, right? And that's, that's coming from the top, maybe even from the outside, right? Which is your investors or future investors. So... Is there really a way around it, right? Or is that just going to be a, you know, a shooting star kind of culture where you burn really bright and really fast and burn out? I personally don't think there's a way around it. I think that the way around it is to build a real business, which is what I'm doing now, which is a for-profit business that can afford to grow smart, that has the ideally has the best interest in mind of the people that work for the business. 
um, and is invested in by customers. Those are our investors. The customers are invested. We don't have an external party who's not using the product every day, telling us what to do or not using the service every day, I should say, telling us what to do. And I think in VC land, the, the by nature of VC land is zero and one. That's what they're looking for. They are willing to fail on nine out of 10 ops so that the one is going to go through the moon, you know, and that's, I don't, that structure is not going to change. You know, venture capitals, venture, cap, venture capitalists, sorry, originally were people who funded whaling expeditions. And if you look at the success rate of whaling expeditions, it's extremely low. But if they did come back with a whale, it was, you know, obviously extremely lucrative. And none of that's changed. It's the exact same thing. We're just talking about tech startups. It's just a different whale that we're chasing, right? Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. And that's true. And I think in some industries, it's also becoming really hard to kind of be self-sustained because it's a fast growth, you know, takes all kind of culture. And I think maybe there are pockets where it's still possible to build sustainable businesses. But yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting perspective. And maybe you can tell all of us a little bit about uh, the business that you run, right? And how did you kind of decide to found that? So I think like all the great things in my life, I fell into it. I didn't have a plan for it. I like to structure it like I had a plan, but it more it, it came to find me. I've done different things. I've you know been in the fitness industry for a long time. I've been in sales for a long time at tech startups. And something I noticed was that a lot of that is broken. A lot of sales and marketing and startups is broken. We all know this. We all talk about it all the time if you're in the sales community and the marketing community. And some of the reasons are fixable and some of them aren't. But I... You know, I started to get specifically post the one exit that I was a part of. I started to get consulting requests quite frequently. And one company asked me to actually build them a sales development team. So trying to expand it nationally. And we managed to do it. I, I called people that I'd worked with that I'd managed before my previous job and other areas. And I said, hey, I've got us a gig for a few months at least. We've all got real jobs. Let's just give this a try and see where we go. And we did fantastically and they signed for a year. It was actually one of the biggest contracts that I've closed, you know, and I was like, you know, super excited by that. And then I realized like, Hey, okay, maybe we've got a company, but it was still a side hustle. Kept my main job. I grew that. I was very, also just very important to share. I was very forthright with my employer at the time as to what I was doing. And this is something I'm also very passionate about is being, being transparent. So we went, we did that. We added another client. And when we added the third client, which was a significant company, I knew I had enough there to to go on. And it was I had enough of a runway. And I always thought of it like if you if you've ever gone like kayaking, all right, or got into a canoe, if everyone tries to get into a canoe at the exact same time, it falls, right? You flip it. So what you need is specific people to enter the canoe at different times so that it stays balanced. And so I was I had to be the last person to enter that canoe because otherwise I would sink it, I was expensive, I needed to, you know, whatever. So I had to get the company to a point that it could afford for me to step in. And and I did, thankfully I did. And the truth is that even before I stepped in, I was still doubting. And thankfully for the, the great equalizer that, you know, COVID has been, it forced my hand in many ways. And that I just had to jump in. It was like, well, either that or, you know, that's not a good analogy, either that or sink, but I jumped in and, and it just took off. Once I put everything, once I had a stable enough foundation, I then managed to accelerate it and uh, build a really uh, great team. We've got 24 people now working for us across the world and, you know, work with the 
clients of all different types. And effectively what we do is sales development, outsource sales development, but we also do marketing and branding work. And we also build human verified contact data lists, which is something that I've become very focused on and very passionate about doing. And it's, it's one of the fastest growing areas of our business as well. And so, you know, uh, when as an outsourced uh, sales development uh, team and, uh, you know, providing some of those services, I'm assuming that you probably, you know, work with or, you know, are maybe sought out uh, by early stage startups, right? Maybe people who have like, you know, good tech founders, a good MVP of a product, uh, and but don't necessarily have the skills to you know, basically sell and market, right? Is that your ideal kind of profile Not today? today, but when I started, that's what I took. And we were lucky that the first ones that we took, we could do something good with. We also had numbers that we took that we couldn't, right? And it was a very painful experience. Since then, effectively, we'll take a company on board that has a marketing function and ideally one salesperson who's not the founder. Unless the idea is so phenomenal and so intriguing that, you know, we have to work with you, we won't take you on. So if I look across the group, the group of companies that we work with today, all of them have marketing functions and some sales function in place. We also won't take super early stage startups because I think at that stage, they're not ready to properly invest in customer acquisition. What they think they, what they want and what they're able to do with their budget is is not aligned today. And I think a lot of those companies have to at least get past the series A and a significant series A to do proper, you know, to expand properly. And I'm being validated by that because if you look at the recent series A announcements that are popping up all over the, the place, they're now looking north of $10 million, which you, I've never heard of before, you know, this year, basically, unless it was something out of this world. And I think everyone's realized just how expensive it is to acquire customers. And yeah, so that's the types of companies now that we work with. Don't get me wrong with all of my kind of doom and gloom about the power structures inside of startups. I absolutely love SaaS startups. That's who we work with. That's a world I can never get away of, away from. I talk about VCs and I love the whole concept. I love taking the bold risks. I'm not here to say, you know, poo-poo to the to the startup culture. But, you know, if you're asking about oh, how do you avoid that culture, I'm saying you got to build a different kind of business. But all of our customers are in the startup space, in the SaaS space. It's a space I love and I'm very um, familiar with and, you know, ridden that roller coaster up and down. So, so yeah, so that's, that's who we focus on and, and that's the world that we operate in. And so, you know, Given that you worked with, or at least initially you thought that was the ideal customer profile, which was, you know, maybe a startup without, you know, in-house sales and marketing talent, right? To today saying that you only want to work with startups which have at least a baseline of a sales and marketing talent, right? You know, I know that there is, of course, a big readiness shift uh, between those two stages, having gone through that myself. What is your advice for people who are still in the first stage, right? Because a lot of times people who are in that first stage, they want to get out of that stage as quickly as they can. Uh, right, because you, you're kind of in, in in like what feels like a very lonely no man's land. Right, you don't have customers. You uh, think you build a great product, or you know you're onto something really big, but you're not able to kind of leap forward. Right, and that's kind of where you start saying, you know what, maybe I can bring somebody who's an expert and who can do that. But clearly, that fails. Right, and I've seen that fail so many times. And you know, every time a founder asks me, listen. I have this great sales consultant who I think might be able to help me get to my first 20 customers. My advice always is don't, uh, right? It's going to fail. So I'm curious to hear what, what your take on that is. I think if you as a founder or if your founding team 
can't get you to that point, you probably shouldn't start the startup with those people in it because I think you're up against a, a very big uphill battle that in the last year and a half has drastically become harder. People are much more distracted. Companies are much more fragmented. Decision-making is fragmented. You know, it's, it's not so simple. So I think if today your executive founding team can't get you those first 20 customers on their own, then they shouldn't be doing it. And if, but if you are in that team and you say, I, I can do it, I just need some guidance, I would, you know, ready build a, a very solid Rolodex. And I would start to look at all of the referrals that I can get, all of the reference customers that I can get and nurture those one or two or three. And hey, customer number three, can you introduce me to somebody else? Like, let's make it four. And, you know, try and stack the deck in your favor. I would also say that you should ideally only start a startup in an industry where you've got very good connections to cust potential customers, because that's actually the hardest part of this entire venture is not getting the tech right and the bugs sorted that you'll figure out. It's getting customers, getting paying customers repeatedly. And to start is very difficult. And, and to get out of that initial stage is extremely painful. Uh, you, know, you know, it's lonely. It's also very painful. It's at this pulled in so many directions you and and no one else can really actually execute on any of those directions properly other than yourself and it's a phase that you that everyone and it also by the way applies in you know a non-funded business too it's the same thing i mean i've just gone through that as well and it's very hard you have to sell your way out of it somebody said to me yesterday something that I, it, it's the first time i ever heard it and it made the most sense he actually said that getting a meeting is the hardest part of the entire sales process. And when I listened to that, I was like, wait a second, you're right. Because once you've got a meeting, you've got a chance, right? Before you've got a meeting, you've got no chance. So I'm talking B2B, right? So, so yeah, I think, yeah. I think at, at the very least, even if you can't, you're not a great closer, getting attention, just get attention then. And figure out some way to sign sign them on for for discounted price or something. You know, use the worst tactics that you can find to get them on. But at least get attention at, at the minimum. And you're right. I mean, getting the meeting is the hardest part because, you know, literally time is the one thing that people yeah. can't get back, right? And everybody's trying to optimize for it. And getting that initial meeting means that they have very little to go by in a lot of cases to say that they want to invest uh, their time with you, right? Like when people are making a decision on behalf of a company, you know, money isn't uh, as important to them as their own time. So yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's why being uh, an outsourced SDR agency is probably uh, much, much harder uh, than yes. it sounds. One thing that, you know, I'm really intrigued by, and uh, you wrote about this recently, but what I label as the freedom maths, and you said, you know, I hate to work and I wouldn't want to work more than I need to. And so one way to keep yourself motivated is uh, to look at it in terms of the freedom math. Can you tell everyone about it? And have you been able to extend that beyond yourself to your so, team as well? Uh, yes. Yeah, so it's, so I, I know people find it hard to believe, but there are probably a million other things that are more fun to do than working. If you were paid the same amount, right? If you were paid the exact same amount to do anything else, you'd learn guitar, you'd travel, you'd go learn how to surf, whatever, right? We all know that. And, and I think that there's a fallacy that exists in the workplace, which is this concept of, well, when I retire, I'll be able to, you know, I just need to give 60 years of my life to working and the last hopefully 20 or however, maybe it's another 40, I'll live to 100. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. The problem is when I was a personal trainer, I trained those people. Those were my clients. My number one clients were business executives who had made it, at least on paper. 
They were extremely unhealthy. They had really bad interpersonal relationships, all of them across the board. And they were miserable. They were the most miserable people. They had no time to themselves. They had all the money in the world. They drove to their problems in a fancy car, as the Wolf of Wall Street would say. But, like, you can't win it back. You can't win that time back. You can't win the family time back. You can't win the, the, the workout time back. You can't win the sleep back. You can't win the holidays and experiences back because if you're, if you're chasing some sort of long-term endpoint to get a retirement, like if that's so many people's goal is to stop working, then you need to, you know, you need to just think about that for a second, right? So for me, I, I basically, you know, I, I've never stopped having that thought. I thought maybe I'd grow up one day. I haven't. So at some point I realized that, well, I have to, I have to rig the game a little bit because being an employee doesn't buy you that much freedom time. I like that freedom maths. That's an awesome expression. It doesn't buy you. You look at the freedom maths. It's like a, a one plus one is two situation. If you're good in sales, you know, maybe you buy an extra month of freedom, right? Just for some future use. When you own a business, you own a, you know, freedom printing machine that if you can accelerate it enough, you can buy much more freedom. And the, the trick is actually to not fall into the trap once you get it going there. I'm not there yet. I hope to be there. But I noticed that if you keep making, if you keep spending more than you're earning or your spending increases as your earning increases to the same proportion, you're still in the trap. But if you can keep some sort of level of discipline or contentment about your life and use that financial advantage to buy you time, then you win. Then you've got real wealth. And the book that got all of this craziness stuck in my head was the four hour work week. Okay. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've read or listened to that book, to Tim Ferriss's book. I call it like, you know, it's, it's the great fantasy novel. I always like think about it like that, right? It's the, it's the fantasy novel for the board, <laughs> you know, employee or, or business owner. But, and I, and I doubt very much that a lot of it is possible because I'm like, well, Tim, didn't necessarily write the book in four hours. You know, he had to put in a lot of time just to write the book. But conceptually, there's a lot there that stuck with me, which is this concept of buying time. And it's a kind of almost like a rebellious thing. Like, wait a second, I don't have to play by this book. Like, I can, I can do something different. What's cool now is by default, we've all got an opportunity that the book speaks, like one of the principal elements of the book is this ability to buy yourself freedom of movement, right? The two things that define freedom of movement, freedom of time. We've all got, if you're in tech world, obviously, or services, we've all got freedom of movement now yeah. that is completely normal. A, two years ago, if you're like, hey, guys, I'm moving to Costa Rica and I'm going to just carry on doing sales from there, you could lose your job. Today, people would be like, all right, just make sure you got good Wi-Fi and that you're available in working hours and talk to us in Slacks. Have a good time. Makes sense, you know? Suddenly, like, everything... Like everything changes. My plan now for the next three years, I'm waiting for the airports to reopen and things to kind of stabilize. But ideally, my kids are very young. My plan is basically to spend a chunk of time in a different country every year until they have to start school. At least until my son has to start school. So we can have that. I want to go like Italy's a place that you know my wife and I love. I want to spend like two months there and just live in the Italian town, work from there, just live normal life, but just live from there. And I think you know, that to me is wealth. And yeah, I think, like I said, COVID for me was a big equalizer. I, I looked at things that I thought I really wanted. Like I'm a, I love cars. I love watches. And I just, I was like, 
do I really? I don't actually need that. I've got like one watch that I really like, and I've got this Apple Watch, and I've got a car that's nice and I'm very happy with. And I don't like. I don't need to aspire to you know to have the the Audi or the Ferrari one day or whatever. Like, nah. I think I'll use that instead for buying more time and experiences, which is actually what I at least I've seen anecdotally. Apparently, you know, at least for me, at least makes me happy. So. That that's where the maths comes from, and I think I think that as an employee you don't have that. What well, you do have a lot of freedoms in other areas that you've got holidays and sick pay, and you've got the freedom of of at the end of the day closing your eyes and saying not my business, you know, like whatever someone else got to worry about keeping this thing running. I just do my job. You don't have that freedom as a business owner, but as an owner you've got a, a massive opportunity to accelerate it. You know, I think that's that's the trick that a lot of people miss which is and recently Scott Galloway also wrote about that which is that you know a lot of times when people think about buying themselves that freedom in terms of a retirement all right they always look at how do they increase the top line right how do they increase their income but there is an equal opportunity and a pretty big opportunity which is in reducing your expenses right you maybe don't need that fancy watch you probably don't even care about it beyond the first week of having it and so i think it's important for people to kind of focus on both things and i think in some sense culturally and this probably applies even more so in the sales world than maybe in other parts right is that people often take pride in the money that they spend all right versus the, in the money that they maybe save so yeah i think that's that's a good lesson you know i think we've we've had a fun conversation and uh, i didn't quite realize that we've you know kind of spent over the time that we planned for this where can people find you and who should um, connect who with should, you i'll start with who should connect with me whoever feels that they want to connect with me is open to connect with me i have no you know no barriers unless you're trying to harass me or something but you can find me look the best place <laughs> if you really want to get in touch with me is probably through linkedin just look up david zeff i probably the only one i don't know i'm the, i'm the dude at the moment with the family in this picture so yeah you can find me and and yeah otherwise i mean yeah that, that's probably the best place to find me if you want to if you're looking at you know on a business level talking about sdr or you know improving the way you're doing your that you're handling your go-to-market happy to chat about that and you can also take a look at our website callwhistle.com for ideas and and you know conversations there as well awesome thanks so, thanks much, so much for, for chatting with me awesome.